Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week's episode is a twofer. These two guys are Marines, one active, one former. They have their own podcast and they discuss marksmanship as it pertains to the Marine Corps. Join me in welcoming Frank Gao and Matt Gunlack to the show. How you doing, gentlemen? Appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it, Dave. No problem. You ever gotten a, an applause before going on show? I don't think so. <laughs> There's usually a the opposite reaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People usually people aren't that pleased to uh, see us. Well, if you would, why don't you two gentlemen? We're going to go um, alphabetical order so that we're not confused, um, unless I ask you guys specifically a question to you. So, Frank, why don't you start by introducing yourself? Hey, everyone. I'm Frank Gao. I uh, joined the Marine Corps in 2010. I started shooting competitively in 2018 when I was stationed out in Miramar. So I started shooting um, with the uh, Linnea Del Fuego Club out there in San Diego near Temecula. Um, moved over to North Carolina. And uh, during that, I uh, made a lot of friends, some of the guys that are currently on the shooting team. I got more into USPSA. I got into tactile games. Uh, somewhere along the way, Matt asked me to be a part of his podcast. Uh, so I'm currently the co-host. I'm also the match director for Quantico doing USPSA and PCSL. And um, I've shot production and carry optics, but the current uh, trend is open. All right. I didn't know you were a Top Gun instructor. <laughs> um no no not 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 quite that high speed <laughs> okay all right matt how about you M matt can you hear us hello matt matt yeah i can hear you um yeah i seem to be having some low bandwidth over here but uh yeah i'll go ahead and introduce myself uh, my name is matt gunlock i retired last year from the marine corps uh, infantryman by trade. Uh, back in 2013, I was watching an episode of Th uh, Three Gun Nation on the Outdoor Channel. Saw James Gill on there. Was like, wow, this is actually really cool. Thought it was an looked took it as an opportunity of seeing this, saying I can do this too. Not that well, apparently. Uh, from my first <laughs> match I ever did, finishing last. But uh, you know, took all the lessons learned and everything and was like, I can use these skills here in order to train my Marines and kind of went on from there, got hooked on it, hook, hooked on three gun. Uh, back in 2018, I joined the Marine Corps shooting team and I was on the pistol team, the precision pistol team, uh, shot some Bianchi with them, uh, went over, took over the entire team as a staff in 2IC. Um, which is staff non-commissioned officer in charge, senior enlisted guy. Um, and then um, a year out from retirement, I got my replacement. And so then I went and took took over the three-gun team, took a step down because I wanted to kind of focus on me, took over the three-gun team, and now I'm retired. And just kind of shooting tactical games, shooting three-gun, uh, USPSA here and there, but just mainly focusing on the three-gun and, and tactical game side of the house interesting all right we'll come back to that later because i've got a whole bunch of questions about that stuff um but before we get there i've got to ask you guys all the hard questions right up front okay all right we're gonna kind of burn you out a little bit you know fry your brain a little bit to start with 
All right, starting alphabetically, Frank, favorite movie? Shawshank Redemption. Oh, good one. Okay. Yeah. So it's, uh, I've seen it maybe six or seven times. I just keep showing it to people. And uh, it was the first movie in high school that uh, made me realize, made me seek better movies. Um, mm. I mean, it's, 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 it's an incredible, it's incredibly well acted. And uh, it's based on, I think it's a Stephen King uh, short story. And uh, yeah, I just keep going back to that one. I always think uh, when I think of Shawshank Redemption, I also think of Green Mile. Do you like the Green Mile? I actually haven't seen the Green Mile. I know it's pretty close, and um, but yeah, I need to. So my, I get that reaction a lot. for me. I know. Um, <laughs> a lot of people are always like, "You haven't seen this movie." Um, we immigrated to the United States when I was two years old, so a lot of people's parents tend to show them classic movies, and mine had like. Uh, China didn't have exposure to a lot of Western cinema until until the uh, end of the Cultural Revolution. So my dad's first movies were like Rambo First Blood. And um, yeah, I mean, so there's there's a lot of gaps there that I had to go and fill in on my own. So I will go see The Green Mile. <laughs> OK, yeah, great movie. Interesting. So we'll have to we'll have to come back to the uh, whole Cultural Revolution thing. For sure. All right, Matt, what about your favorite movie? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say the movie, but then I'm going to go into a series because I like TV series a lot more. Um, if I okay. had to go with a favorite movie, American Psycho. Uh, oh, Christian wow. Bale is a phenomenal actor. Uh, you know, he has been my kind of man crush growing up. Uh, but, you know. <laughs> uh, no, I just think it's a phenomenal movie and it's, you know, just kind of, you know, what goes on in somebody's head. Uh, but, you know, off of that, uh, my favorite series would, I'd have to say, is Spartacus. Uh, that was, that came out probably around 2011, 2012. Uh, I love history. Um, I wouldn't call myself as educated as what frank is whenever it comes to history you know he's getting his master's in history from georgetown but uh i just find like the aspects of ancient history really interesting one of my favorite podcasts is called the ancients and it goes over a lot of greek egyptian roman history and stuff like that so i just find it uh relatively interesting and interestingly enough besides all the drama and sex and everything that goes on in that show um the historical accuracy of like how they fight the romans and go through uh from town to town trying to survive and you know get their freedom it's actually pretty historically accurate so yeah okay i thought for sure when you said american psycho and then you were moving to a tv series you were going to say dexter oh no I, that was a good show but by season three it just kind of got you know season three of dexter and on just kind of got all right we've seen this whole thing over and over again okay in that same genre have you seen the series you no my my wife's watched it i watched some of it with her i've seen i've seen all four seasons hmm. so it's a dude who is basically a ser serial killer okay yeah Y-O-U, you, that's it. Okay. I think I'll it's on it HBO or, um, I think it's HBO. It could be, actually, I think it's on Netflix now. I think it's, it's on Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, it's okay. Netflix, actually. Yeah, just check it out. All right. You may, you may, so it's one of those things I found that people either love it or they hate it. Mm -hmm. So, and we've, we've been in both places and we've still watched all four seasons. So, okay. Next hard question. 
Um, based on what I listened to briefly of your podcast, you guys have both deployed, which is the only time I ever read in the Marine Corps. So favorite book. So for me, um, uh, it'd be the things they carried by Tim O'Brien, which, so just a quick correction. I actually haven't deployed, not for lack of trying. Um, yeah, just things have come up and the timing hasn't worked out in, uh, in several occasions. Uh, but the things like, I don't know, if, have you read that book, Dave? I have not. The Things the, I Carry? The Things They Carried. Uh, it's a collection of short no. stories based out of Vietnam. So Tim O'Brien was a Vietnam War veteran. And he wrote a memoir after his time in the Vietnam War. And then 10 years later, he basically writes the same stories, but he writes them from a fictional perspective. And the whole book is about how, you know, we go out and we experience these things in the military and life. And the way that we... Uh, convey the truth of what happened to us in that distant land or whatever um, through storytelling is, you know, there's a little bit of elaboration in some places, exaggeration, uh, but it's a lot about his process of just processing what he went through by turning it into fiction, which I find really interesting. I was a creative writing major, so that, that book uh, mm. checks several boxes for me. Okay, that's interesting. What about you, Matt? Um, so it's kind of a twofer here, all by the same author. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think, is a phenomenal author. Um, and I'm always looking for ways to really improve myself as a person. And so the first one would be Outliers. And that book is more or less how successful people surround themselves with other successful people. Um, and, you know, just become more successful. And it's not a matter of, you know, just focusing on certain groups of people it's how can i be a better person a better friend a better partner uh and just a a better person altogether and actually make legitimate connections um in order to, to become successful how do i connect with people and that really hits me because you know with life all we have is each other and we got to be as good as we can be i've used the I don't want to say tactics, but I've used the same examples that he gives in that book in order to make myself uh, a better person, podcast host, um, friend, and, you know, just getting out and meeting people. I think networking is one of the most important things that a person can do in order to, you know, to be successful. Uh, the other one is Blink. And Blink is, you know, you have two ways of uh thinking you have an analytical side where you're just constantly analyzing the information and then you have that you know quick fast decision making skills and as a marine you have to have you have to be equipped with both sides you have to be able to analyze the situation analyze the information that's been taken in and then utilize all that information to make a proper decision but not always do you have the ability to sit back and just think um of what's going to happen if I do this. Sometimes you have to make that split decision and go with your gut. Uh, so that was, that, those two have really played a big part in my development as a, a leader whenever I was in the Marine Corps and continue to do so. All right. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that because I, I, I'm, I've been a paramedic for over 23 years and uh, the one of the, I like medical stuff. It's intriguing to me. It's very interesting. The whole thought process of trying to troubleshoot what's going on with somebody. But 
the reason I feel that I am a good paramedic is exactly what you said. Being able to make a decision and going with it, not getting flustered and, and moving on. And that seems to be a huge issue for a lot of people, whether mm -hmm. you're in the military or paramedicine. All right. I don't know if you guys are into superheroes. I, I'm not really, but if you are, who is your favorite superhero? If not, this might be more Frank's uh, role here. Favorite historical figure. Uh, I'll start with the superheroes. Um, it's actually Superman. And I know that's not a popular answer. Um, most people see him as boring, but there are some stories that I, the, the stories in which some of the, there's been some comics where he's been written incredibly well. I think it's hard to write a good Superman story. Um, so yeah, as a bit of a comic nerd, um, kingdom come, um, all-star Superman, red sun, like I've really enjoyed a few of those things. Um, in terms of historical figure, it's got to be Genghis Khan. So Matt mentioned uh, I'm currently a, 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 I'm a I'm a grad student at Georgetown. Um, it's actually a Marine Corps program, so I'm going to go teach at the Naval Academy afterwards. But man, uh, learning about what a massive Chad Genghis Khan was um, and just how horrendously effective he was at uh, conquering and just raising cities to the ground was um, it was pretty phenomenal, and that, that was a really interesting class to be in. Hmm. So how did he motivate everybody to come with him and do that? Um, so he gave, he would always send envoys uh, to cities and he said, uh, if you surrender, then we'll leave you alone. We'll leave your system government in place. All you have to do is send troops when called upon. But if you resist, we're going to come and we're going to absolutely mess you up. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of it. And they were just incredibly effective at war fighting. Uh, there's a lot of things I could talk about in terms of why, um, but we'll just leave it at that. There was a lot of psychology involved too. People just didn't want to tangle with them. Um, they basically set Baghdad back like an entire millennium. Sounds wow. like a lot like Xerxes and Darius. A little bit, but yeah, uh, yeah. yes, yeah. All right, Matt, your turn. All right. Uh, so Captain America, I'd have to say, is my favorite uh, superhero. Uh, you know, kind of the resurgence of the Marvel Cinematic Universe whenever that movie first came out. Just, uh, you know, just, you know, he's just a, a ultimate figure. Like, even in comic book terms or even in real life, just somebody you can, uh, you know, shape your life after and your values and ethics and morals and beliefs and not just really giving up but uh and historical figures um in terms of historical figures that i kind of you know my favorite uh i would have to say is Boudicca. she was a celtic warrior back uh whenever the romans were taking on uh britain and mm -hmm. you know she was put her her whole tribe was basically uh you know the, the way the romans basically went in there and you know took over and, and conquered areas uh her daughters were raped um and she retaliated and she, basically she almost took took on the entire roman army that was in britain and almost defeated them ultimately they lost uh obviously but just somebody who could uh, stand up to the to the bigger power and make an impact to where she's still, you know, known today. That's that's huge, especially as a woman. 
Uh, yeah, in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Now, your favorite gun and caliber, but they don't have to be linked together. So just because, let's say your favorite gun is a 1911, doesn't mean your favorite caliber is 45. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, so my, my favorite would be uh, just the Beretta 92. Um, so first, first pistol I shot in the military, uh, but also recently gone uh, distinguished in the Marine Corps. And it's responsible for 26 out of my 30. Well, actually, no, 20 out of my 30 points. So got a lot of got a couple gold medals with that gun. A lot of people like to uh, like to bag on it, but it's always served me extremely well. And I I prefer it to the current M18, like hands down. I would take the Breda uh, every time. And my favorite caliber is 38 Super Comp. Like I'm shooting it right now. It's just it's super expensive, but it is an awesome cartridge. Um, it just hurts the wallet. <laughs> now, Frank, I was in before the 92 became part of the military. Um, and I was never a fan of it. Uh, there was also the time when they first came out, there was a bunch of problems. Slides were coming off, whacking people in the head, all kinds of weird craziness. Um, so, but what is it that you like more about the 92 than the 18 that's come out? The 18's iron sights are really counterintuitive. They're very blocky. I know what they're trying to get at, but it it obscures. Essentially, the uh, point of impact is in the middle of the front sight post. So if you're mm. shooting at a 25-yard target, the entire front sight post is obscuring your target, and you are just basically playing Where's Waldo with your bullet. Um, and also, like, the... <laughs> the um, I mean, the, the current hotness is a uh, target focus, right? And that, that's, I, I've yeah. been working on it with irons. It's really hard to be target focused when, uh, I, man, I told a joke um, during the 2021 championships, the first time I shot the M18, uh, I basically, uh, for those of you that are Star Wars nerds, I was like, that's no moon. Those are the M18 iron sights. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. That makes perfect sense. All right, Matt, your turn. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with the M249 squad automatic weapon. Uh, that's a gun that I started with early on in my career. Um, I was a saw gunner whenever I was on my first deployment to Iraq. Uh, carried that thing for 40 miles uh, on one operation in 11 days, clearing house to house. Uh, I know that gun inside and out i loved it it's one of the, i love the sound it makes whenever it is shooting the cycle or the rate of fire it's just it's an awesome and beautiful weapon system that that sucker is fast oh yeah do you know who randall tolls is i don't i i know who he is he's um yeah he's army isn't he he is yeah he was just at um well, I almost said carry optics nationals, but no, it was uh, last year's nationals. Um, anyway, it's funny because he's in the army. So we were having a conversation and one of the questions I asked him was, okay. He told me what his favorite gun was. I said, okay, but what was your favorite? What was the most fun weapon you fired in the military? And he said, without a doubt, the M249. He said, same thing. I love, I was, he was a machine gunner and mm -hmm. that's what he shot. He absolutely loves it 
And I actually mentioned the slick, cyclic rate of fire on that thing because anytime someone says M249, I automatically hear that thing. That little sucker's fast. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I had to go for a second, you know, it'd be an M240 in terms of machine guns. I mean, just those two weapon systems complement each other so well. And, you know, they just they run if you take care of them. I'm still waiting for someone to say the Mark 19, but uh, you know what? <laughs> you know, it's a cool weapon system and all, but it, it, it's yes, cool. you're shooting grenades, but it's kind of like, all right, this is a big clunky thing that I don't want to have to try and move around. Uh, and I same guess with, he is... same with the 50. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now, that thing's just too heavy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I like the sound of the Mark 19, the doom, 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 mm -hmm. doom, doom, doom. So pretty neat. So what about caliber? Uh, caliber, quite honestly, I'm a simple man. I like, uh, I, I like nine mil, nine mils perfectly fine with me. Um, you know, but I don't need anything more bigger. <laughs> That's perfect for me. Okay. All right. Now uh, to finish these up, the the last one is your favorite military experience. The for Frank thus far, Matt overall. Hmm. Um. So yeah, I haven't deployed, um, but I was able to travel to Okinawa and Korea. Um, we went okay. out there to do an evaluation. And uh, so in Korea, it was um, Pohang, it's Camp Mujuk, right? Uh, did a week in Okinawa and then Been we went there. over there, um, Camp Mujuk. Yeah. So for yep. those of you, it's it's really desolate. Like you think Korea and you're like, oh, that's so cool. Um, but it's like, for those of you that have been 29 Palms, it's like Camp Wilson, but in Korea. So you don't even have the benefit of, uh, of like talking to people in English. But um, yeah, that was that just being able to see that part of the world. And it also convinced me that uh, in the future, if I do decide to stay in, um, convince the wife that if we get orders to Okinawa, then she's she's all in. Um, but yeah, and then I also got to uh, do some sightseeing in Busan on the way out. So that was pretty cool. Um, okay. I just remember the second one. Second one is riding an MP-22 into uh, Las Vegas during a weapons and tactics instructor school and uh, just hitting the strip with my classmates afterwards. Cool. All right, Matt. All right. Um, probably, I have a couple. Um, two prominent ones. So 2005's deployment to Iraq. Uh, that was probably one of my most kinetic deployments. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was cowboys and Indians out there. You were scared. You were you were having fun. You were doing your job. Um, you, you made some of the greatest friendships that would last a lifetime and have a lot of shared experiences so that i would say that was one of my most favorite experiences uh my second most favorite experience was in 2017 uh i was stationed over in bahrain at the time and i was able to get attached to joint special operations task force arabian peninsula and you know went out there and for two months i wore civilian clothes grew a beard and basically drop bombs on enemy uh combatants for two months straight uh it was probably one of the most freeing experiences i had in a long time uh in terms of we were all grown men and we just basically operated it on our own level nobody held your hand nobody you know it was adult rules out there 
so that was really that was a good experience um and i have been to mujuk i hate that place <laughs> it's pretty bad <laughs> it's really bad because whenever i was out there in 2014 we were out i was an 81 section leader at the time and you know we were it was with the wind chill it was negative 30 degrees and we were dropping mortars it was miserable that sounds awful and you you're not allowed to wear gloves when you when when, when you're dropping mortars i wasn't there when it was that cold um but we called it mud chuck when we were there it was just all mud pure mud that's mm -hmm. all it was yeah i've been to korea three times from okinawa mm -hmm. from from okinawa we went to korea three times pohang and pusan and we went to the philippines three times so we were just kind of all around nice. good times all right now matt i'm going to start with you on this one um since frank immigrated at the age of two that may be a little bit more of a story i don't know yet but when did you first shoot a, a a gun a firearm um i would say i was probably four or five years old so my biological father was a, a narcotics cop an undercover narcotics cop down in miami uh back in the 80s and i just remember I, I vividly remember us going out to the Everglades uh, and just putting beer cans and, you know, sticks and different targets out there and just shooting a revolver. Uh, that was probably one of the only memories that I have uh, with him. Did he? I don't mean uh, to get personal. No, no, oh, no, he, I, it doesn't bother me. Uh, he did not die. Uh, well, he, he ended up dying later on of a heart attack, but he left, uh, he left me and my brother and my mother uh, whenever we were six years old. So uh, no okay. love lost there. I, but first time at shooting a gun, that was with him. Okay. Now, Frank, you immigrated. So a lot of the people that I interview, you know, their parents are American. They grew up doing a lot of the same stuff. A lot, a lot of people out in the country, just like what Matt said, you know, going out and, and shooting for the first time as a kid. When was the first time you shot a gun? Or was that even a thought growing up? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was a young boy. The problem was we immigrated to California. So it wasn't like uh, it was very easy to get a gun. And uh, most immigrant families don't, like, they got other things going on. So they don't necessarily get right into firearms, right? So the first right. time I fired a gun was a uh, 22. I was a Boy Scout. I ended up doing my Eagle Scout. And uh, I was at Boy Scout camp, and uh, there was a rifle marksmanship uh, merit badge. And it was just a little range bench rest, and we were just you know, we just did some plinking, like some bullseye shooting. Um, yeah, so that was the very first time. And then I'd say the second time is uh, when I joined and went to boot camp. Okay. Now, are you a Mustang then? Yeah. Technically, um, I like to tell people I'm, I'm more I'm more of a I'm more of a fosting or uh, I guess you call it like a I'm more of a pony, right? So for those of you um, like a Mustang is someone who goes enlisted than officer. Um, I I wanted to enlist. My parents told me they'd kill me if I didn't go to college first. So I did one year of college and then I enlisted in the reserves. Uh, helped pay my way through college. Mm. Um, I did uh, I did the commissioning program while I was going through college. And then as soon as I got my degree, I commissioned. So there you have it. I'm a dollar store pony. 
<laughs> did you did you know that you wanted to be a marine when you went into college or a little bit i i had a buddy who uh enlisted out of high school uh his name's jason and he he became an eod tech eventually and uh you know looked up to the guy he brought me along to pool events uh, i just go and get smoked and i was like i love this i want to keep doing it right uh, but then talk with the parents and I also got offered a scholarship to go to school in Boston. I was like, yeah, that's a good deal. I shouldn't pass that up. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. I always wanted to get into the Marine Corps and then, uh, you know, it just worked out with my plans to uh, enlist into the reserves. The thought process at the time, because I was young and idealistic was that I wanted to go through the same path that my future Marines would go through if I was going to become an officer. Okay. Um, so I, I was a, I, I, yeah, I was a mortarman. Uh, I was a mortarman reserves up in Fort Devens, Massachusetts, first uh, battalion, 25th Marines. Um, and Matt and I have talked about this. I uh, spent some time on the gun line, but most of my time was the fire direction uh, center. So if you give because me a smart. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you, like, you know, it, it's the Marine Corps, man. They looked at me and they're like, yeah, are you good at math? I'm like, that's kind of insulting. Um, but then I, ended up, <laughs> I was going to say they're going to make they're going to make the Chinese guy who knows the math go over and be in. The... I, 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 I swear. I swear to you. We, um, man, it's one of my most vivid memories. We we're doing land nav. Right. And uh, a captain is leading us and we hit we hit our point and he's like, ah, what's our back azimuth? And he points at me. He says, Asian kid, math, go. And then <laughs> this is the captain, right? This is the officer. And the staff sergeant that's with us is like, sir, we can't say that. And I'm like, by the way, the back azimuth is this. So there's a reason that the stereotypes exist. Um, yeah, it's good times. Uh, oh, that's hilarious. Now, I got to ask you. Did you have to, did you ever have to drop any mortars in 30 degree below zero weather? Oh no, absolutely not. We, um, okay. it got cold in Massachusetts, but no, um, honestly, all my summer, all my training was during the summer, um, the dead heat in the North Carolina, South Carolina. So that mm. I never got to experience like the, the true cold, you know? Okay. I got to, uh, I got to experience, uh, Bridgeport in the winter. Oof. So I enjoyed it. That I'm I'm a cold weather guy. So I was okay with it. I know you guys ended up at Quantico, but where did you guys go to boot camp? Did you go to Paris Island or San Diego? So I grew up in California, but I went to boot camp in um Paris Island because I enlisted uh when I was going to school in Boston. Uh, okay. yeah, that was 2010. But uh Matt you're enlisted out of Florida, so you're also Paris Island, yeah? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he enlisted out of Miami, and uh, that means that he would have also went to Paris Island. Yeah. Oh, I was straight up Paris Island. All right, and what year was that, Matt? Platoon 2075 Echo Company, 2nd Battalion. Yeah, what year, Matt? I think he's got some late issues going on. Um, yeah. Uh, 2002. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I do. So I was in Korea just when you were a, a very little guy, because I was in Korea in '86 and '87. I wasn't alive then. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to be that guy. So there was even less there then than there probably is now. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Frank, you were saying you went to college and you did creative writing. Yeah. Um, 
so I went to Emerson College, uh, which is like a super liberal arts school in uh, in Boston. And um, yeah, so I focused on, I did a little bit of fiction and nonfiction. Um, I actually uh, published a book for my thesis. It was a memoir of um, just my, my, my family's like story coming to the United States. And um, my parents growing up in China, growing up during the Cultural Revolution, deciding to come to the United States, um, us growing up in California, and then eventually my decision to, you know, join the Marine Corps. About 100 pages, uh, donated a bunch of money to the Wounded Warrior Project. And uh, it, it was just something nice to like leave college with. Oh, wow. That's, I don't think there are too many people that publish a book while they're in college. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, mostly because, uh, I mean, there's not much life to write about when you're 22 years old. But I managed to, find, yeah. I managed to figure it out. Yeah, you had a story. So it's all good. Now, what is this? You keep mentioning cultural revolution. For those of us who don't know what um, that is, what is it? So, yeah, I'm probably getting some things because uh, I've read about it um, historically, but also have heard about it from my parents. So um, it was instituted um, while Mao was still alive. And it was eventually like it was um, it was a total ban of like Western culture. Um, along with some other things, some economic shifts and uh, et cetera. Um, but essentially it was China like closing itself off to the world. Mm. And um, so during that time, my parents are lucky. They, they were both the youngest in their families and they were the only ones to go to college because um, by the time the Cultural Revolution had ended, they were of college age. So they could actually, you know, go, go pursue their undergraduate degrees and eventually um, qualify for the H-1B visa, which is like a special technical visa, um, which has become kind of a hot topic now. But the initial iteration of it was to allow people with special technical skills like engineers to immigrate into the United States on a work visa and eventually transition into a citizenship. So that's um, that's kind of it in a nutshell. There's definitely more to it um, in terms of like economic policies and things that went wrong. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's the period of life that my parents grew up in. Okay, I got you. I think I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Matt, after you, just so I can put this into perspective. So, I graduated from Paris Island, and then I went to ITS, Infantry Training School. Right. You graduated boot camp and did what? <laughs> Uh, so I graduated boot camp and then I went to ITB, uh, Alpha Company. Uh, ITB uh, became an infantryman. I was an 0311 by trade. After that, I went security forces. So I went to the security forces school there in Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, was in Spain for a year after I graduated there. And then, nice. and that was in 2003. And then 2004, I went to Fast Company. After I got done with my time in security forces, I went to 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines uh, in 2005. Whenever I checked in there in 2005, which I want to say was, uh, that was in January, uh, we deployed about two to three weeks later to Al-Qaim, Iraq. Ooh, that was quick. Yep. Hello, yep. now pack your shit. Yep, which, you know, I kind of preferred it that way. And I kind of, uh, for the most part, that's how I, I spent most of my career. I I had eight deployments total. 
and I literally the longest time I spent in a unit was in first battalion ninth marines and that was 2007 to 2011 um after I got done in 2011 I went to the school of infantry and then in 2014 I checked into uh second battalion ninth marines deployed four to five months later after that came back from that deployment did a quick workup uh and less than a year later i was over with first battalion eighth marines and we deployed over on the black sea rotational force came back from there and then five months after i got back from romania i went over to bahrain for a year 13 months romania who did you go to romania with first battalion eighth marines wow now what was that deploy i gotta ask because we never had Romania on our plate. So what is this Romania thing? So it's a Black Sea Rotational Force uh, where you go over to Romania and Bulgaria, and it's more of a strategic mission, uh, you know, uh, countering Russian. Uh, I don't remember exactly what they said, but basically you're, you're there to counter any kind of Russian aggression, and you're there as a strategic force in place. Uh, and that's what we did. We uh, My platoon, we spent... A good amount of time in Romania did some uh, did some bilateral training with the Romanians, Bulgarians, uh, Slovenians, uh, and the British Royal Marines. I spent about two months down in Bulgaria. We did some uh, joint exercises with them there, and then I spent a few weeks over in Israel, and we uh, trained with their counterterrorism unit. Nice. We did very little training with the Israelis, but that's cool. All right, now I got to ask you, Spain. When I was in Spain meaning we hit Rota doing a med deployment. Right. I, I went to, I think I was by myself. I think I went to a, a club out in town by myself. And I saw all the women there. I was like, oh, my God, every every woman in here is at least an eight. <laughs> I'm like, I may not go back to the ship. How did you enjoy your time in Spain? I don't remember half my time in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> you enjoyed it a lot. I did. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think uh, um, after we'd get off of work, we'd be out, uh, me and a friend Brammer would be hitting the bar by 7 p.m. Uh, we'd probably return by 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and then we'd have Revly at 5.30 in the morning, and then go PT, uh, work all day, and then wash, rinse, repeat. And I remember, pro well, I don't remember, but probably the first six months were like that. Youth has its advantages. It does. <laughs> that's at the age where you can do all that. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's funny. All right. Now, going back to you, Frank. So you went into the reserves, but you went back, you finished out college, and then you went to OCS. Now, what was that? Was that what was that process like? What did you have to do to did you have to go through the normal recruiting steps? I mean, how do you go from a uh, an enlisted guy in the reserves to a college grad and OCS. All right. So uh, when I showed up at the recruiting office, they, you know, I told them I had some college under my belt. So um, they had an agreement with the officer selection office to basically send people over there. Um, so I actually talked to. They were like, "Why aren't you going straight OCS?" And uh, I told them, you know, I just, it was a conviction at the time. I wanted to go through boot camp. I wanted to go through SOI first. Uh, I wanted to experience that side. So what I did was um, uh, enlisted into the reserves. And then I did the 
platoon leaders course. Uh, it essentially splits OCS up into two uh, two segments. So right. I I do I do boot camp in 2010. The summer of 2011, I do six weeks at OCS. The summer of 2012, I do another six weeks at OCS. I pass. 2013, I graduate. I have some time to myself, so I, you know, I, I get another job. I tutored the ACT for a bit, and then I checked into TBS, uh, the basic school, and then I started mm -hmm. my career from there. Um, so it was I basically did like boot camp in three summers in a row. Okay. Yeah. That sounds miserable. It was pretty bad. <laughs> it was all it was all summer, and it was just, uh, yeah. But uh, they're they're quite different. OCS and uh, recruit training, and I would say that like boot camp's harder. It, it definitely is to just have less agency and they, they are, they can, they just thrash you more. Um, but having gone through that first, like understanding the culture, I knew what I was getting into with OCS. Did it, has it helped you so far in um, understanding the enlisted ranks a little better at all, or maybe being able to create relationships with the NCOs? A little bit. I don't lean on it too hard because um, I mean, I don't try to sell myself as a Mustang. It's just something that naturally comes out in conversation. And um, when people see how long I've been in, um, I think where it helps the most is like, you know, as a junior Marine, like you really don't have a lot of agency in any situation. Uh, you're just kind of told where to go and you're not in control of your yeah. schedule. So I, I, I really internalize that, right? Like the things that really pissed me off, I, I, I had some pretty lazy staff and CEOs in the reserves. It's, it's pretty chaotic. Um, I saw a lot of things that you know, I told myself, like, I'm not going to do that to other people. So um, I try to remember what it's like to be the little guy, uh, especially now that I've had like 10 years on the other side. When um, after I got out, I went into the Army Guard two years later and five months into it, I still didn't have a uniform. And I went up, you know, so I, I just came in in civilian clothes. And the sergeant first class who had been in the army guard for eight years total and was an E7 was like, well, there's no, you're not guaranteed a uniform. You have to wear your old Marine Corps stuff. I'm like, that's not how this works. Yeah. I mean, that was, he had yeah. zero leadership ability. So I was like, okay, I'm going to switch over to the air guard now. I'm done with <laughs> it. So. Yeah. The, the reserves is, um, yeah, like I said, quite chaotic. And uh, yes. honestly, I regretted it instantly. Uh, when I showed up, people were out of shape. People were super uh, unmotivated. There were a lot of people like me who uh, went into the reserves with the intent of going through OCS, and they just kind of lost motivation along the way. And I was like, hell no, oh, I'm getting through this. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get my degree, and uh, I'm going to go active duty. It's probably what I should have done the first place, but my parents would kill me if uh, I didn't get my degree first. Matt, you, how, okay. So you said you found three gun in 2013 and I believe you said it was 2018. You found yourself uh, on the pistol team. I did. Yes. So what, what happens in that five-year gap? How do you go from finding three gun to being on the pistol team? Um, so in 2013, I, I started shooting USPSA three gun all from watching three gun nation. Uh, you know, shortly after I got into shooting three gun, I deployed over to Okinawa, did that deployment, came back, started shooting some more three gun, um, deployed again uh, on the Black Sea Rotational Force. When I came back, um, I met with 
or I, I, I shot the FNH three gun championship. Well, I, you know, I really had no understanding or who the Marine Corps shooting team was at the time. Um, besides what I had seen on TV with James Gill. Um, but I ended up running into them. Uh, Nate Stocking was the staff in CIC of the team, at, uh, or the three gun team at the time. And him and one of the other guys asked, Hey, have you thought about coming over to the Marine Corps shooting team? And I was like, no, I never really gave it a thought. Well, would you like to come to the Marine Corps shooting team? No, I would not. They were like, what, what? I was just like, no, I'm about to go on another deployment or I'm going to get, I got orders overseas state. I'm going to be stationed overseas for uh, the next year in about five months. And, uh, and so I, I, I kind of left it at that. Like at that point, like shooting was just a ha hobby. Uh, didn't think of doing it in any kind of professional capacity at the time. I just, my heart was just set, set on doing as many deployments as I could get in uh, and going overseas as much as I could. Uh, and that, and whenever I got over to Bahrain, um, I got a message from Stocking, and he was like, "Hey, man, I I, I want to ask you again. Do you do you want to come to the team?" And I I was, you know, this time I I just kind of sat back and thought about it rather than make make an impulsive decision. And so I talked to my wife, and I was just like, you know, I'm being offered this. What do you think? She's like, well what are you thinking? What does it entail for us? It's like, well, the biggest thing is we'd have to move from Camp Lejeune up there to, to Quantico, Virginia. And, and, and I was like, it's, it's an opportunity and it's a time, a chance for me to take a break. Plus, you know, it'll save us a lot of money. You know, I won't be spending money on all the ammo and more guns and this and that, that, that was a lie. I did, I did save money on ammo, <laughs> but you know, I ended up spending oh. a lot of money on, <laughs> on guns. Um, but, uh, you know, in 2018, I got to the team and, uh, it was a good experience. You know, I wasn't planning on taking over the pistol team. I never shot precision pistol. Whenever they say, Hey, you're going to the bullseye pistol team. I was like, what the fuck is that? Uh, sorry if I cursed, uh, but, okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I looked at it and I was just like, oh dear, what did I get myself into? And, um, you know, so I shot some Bianchi with them, um, you know, and honestly, I, I was able to successfully cut both Bianchi and Precision Pistol out of the program, um, just because my, my whole career has been, you know, deploying and fighting and i just look at that and yes the fundamentals are there there those are the extreme fundamentals but where's the relevancy whenever it comes to war fighting and combat um i didn't see any value in it and so i kind of made it a mission to cut cut uh, precision pistol out of the program and, and then in 2020 uh when i, I kind of used covid to my advantage um, I was able to cut it out because there was no nationals. And I was like, I have a whole team of guys here that have nothing to do. I was like, we have to break this team up and do something. And I, you know, once we got the go ahead to break those guys and put them in the action pistol team and in the three gun team, it was kind of like, all right, well, we don't have a precision pistol team now. So let's just get rid of that team altogether. And we made it happen. What is precision pistol? It's bullseye pistol where you're shooting a t static target at 50 yards away, one-handed, uh, and you're 
and so you shoot at 50 yards away and 25 yards away and at 50 yards you're shooting a string of fire 10 rounds um in 10 minutes and then you move closer to 25 yards and you shoot two strings of fire uh at 25 yards uh five rounds in 10 seconds for two strings and then you shoot uh five rounds uh in 20 seconds for two strings and that's it that's that's the whole course of fire and i was just like this is boring um you know, I will attribute it to making me a better pistol shooter and a better marksmanship marksman altogether, um, because it really allowed me to hone in on my fundamentals and 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 be able to think whenever I press that trigger or just develop the muscle memory to have that perfect uh, trigger press. But ultimately, you know, the course of fire and, and the uh, antiquity of the sport. It just needed to go. Yeah, I mean, I get that. The relevancy to the Marine Corps, there really isn't a whole lot of it other than you're building the fundamentals. Other than that, there it there is no relevancy. So, all right. So it sounds like what, you, what you're describing is just all the NRA um, pistol. NRA shooting, and CMP, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The national matches. There you go. Yeah, that's the best way to, to put it because – so when I was on the summer team in 90, you only had, you had the rifle team, which was high power. Yep. You had the pistol team, which is NRA, CMP, national matches. Yep. And, and you had the international team. Yep. And that, that was all you had. So, you know, obviously things have changed. So that's why I asked you, it wasn't called the precision pistol at the time. So I had to just get that clarified. Um, I do think there is some benefit to that. But I again, like I agree with you guys that it, it doesn't pertain to anything that you do in your normal job. Right. You know what I mean? That that's not how that works at all. So I totally get moving away from it, getting away from it. When I started seeing guys shooting USPSA style practical shooting, I was like, oh, that's much better if that's what they're doing, because it's much more relevant to what they do. Mm -hmm. So I so I totally get it. And we got, um, I don't want to say we got backlash, but there was a lot of people who were not happy with the decision to move away. Um, but, you know, it happened and it's staying. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, things change. It's no different than, you know, the 03 17s. Mm -hmm. So things change. I, I definitely don't agree with that one. I think that's about as retarded as it gets, but that's another episode altogether. Um, all right. So Frank, how did you make your way? You, you went to TBS. Did you have any say, um, in what your MOS was or what were you just told you are this? I had some say, um, which is the, it, the Marine Corps does what it does, and they they let you make a wish list. Right. Um, and then in my case, they disregarded my wish list. My first exactly. choice. Yeah. So I did I did pretty well in TBS. Um, the problem was I didn't do well enough to guarantee an MOS. And my first choice was tanks at the time. In retrospect, that kind of worked out that I didn't go into tanks because uh, <laughs> yeah. my best my best friend he he was he did really well TBS. He got tanks. And uh, now he's a cyberspace like officer. Um, so I ended up becoming a communications officer. Um, okay. At the time, I, 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 I hated it. 
right? I, they told me I had to go to school in 29 Palms for a year. I, it wasn't the way I saw myself. It wasn't, you know, I was coming from a, a mortarman background and, uh, uh, I, I was young. I felt sorry for myself, but eventually, uh, I got over it and I was like, you're going to have, there are Marines out there, you know, going through school and uh, out there in the fleet and they're, uh, you're going to be their Lieutenant. So get over yourself. Um, and, uh, um, yeah. So communications officer, I started at comm squadron 38 and, uh, there was a bunch of us that checked in at the same time, but I had some prior experience that earmarked me. So they, within six months, I was both, I was the XO and the OPSO of my company. Um, they kind of forced me to like assume a lot of roles quickly. And, uh, it just, it just kept going from there. I went to a weapons and tactics instructor school in Yuma, um, learned a lot about the wing, which most people don't understand and, uh, really, really helped me out and helped me understand the Marine Corps in a lot of ways. Uh, from there, I, I went to North Carolina. I was, um, I was the combo for, uh, Intel battalion for a little bit. That was during COVID that. You know, help them out with some stuff, and then I did a company command, uh, and then I got selected for my current program. Okay, all right. For the two of you, when during COVID, what what did Marines do during that time? Well, I'll let you go first. All right. <laughs> well, for the first month or two, whenever it kind of all kicked off, like everybody on the team, pretty much stayed at home uh but we were given the freedom hey if you want to come in you want to train you can come in and train so a bunch of us did that just because we don't want to just be sitting around doing nothing um i would say come by the time june hit i was like all right we got to do something we can't just be sitting around doing nothing so i was able to organize a team trip up to west virginia at peacemaker national training center and we spent the entire week there um and just we trained for four days and then that friday we just shot a match as a team um other than that like after that trip we all kind of went back to work as normal okay what about you frank yes were you in so north I, carolina i was in north carolina um happy because if i was stuck in uh, san diego that, that i don't think that would have gone as well being in north carolina was nice because you know it it um life it didn't really affect normal life as much in terms of the marine corps i was the communications officer for an intelligence battalion um an intelligence battalion they have counterintelligence like geospatial guys a bunch of analysts and essentially um me and my shop we had to migrate the entire uh battalion to telework right so we provisioned a bunch of laptops and we <laughs> we're trying to figure out microsoft teams and uh or basically try to figure out VPNs and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I was kind of the face of all of it. Right? It's it's interesting right now because I would say that um, on one spectrum, like your, your I guess your senior crowd, uh, they didn't really grow up with the uh, internet and computers the same way I did. So some of them get it. Some of them get it really well. And then some of them, like, I got to show them how to map their printer every single time I walk by. You know, <laughs> It's just the way Lord. it is. And, you know, I, as a Cabo, I'm a customer service guy, right? If you don't get it, I'm going to create a sheet, and, you know, Barney style, trying to tell you how to do it. But, uh, you know, some sometimes, like, you just keep leading the horse to water and you hope that eventually a horse to drink on its own. Um, but that was a lot of what we did during COVID. It was honestly nice because at the time I was a geo bachelor. I'd given my wife my GI Bill. Um, she's She was becoming a pharmacist up in Massachusetts when COVID struck it was 
Ooh. basically said, hey, we're going, to, we're going completely online. So we thought we we're going to be apart for three entire years, but we actually got to spend three to four months together. And uh, during that time, I was, I was working out a lot. Um, I, I'd cook a lot of dinners for her because she was always in class. And we got to spend time together that we wouldn't have gotten uh, otherwise. So, and I drive hard a lot. So honestly, um, it was pretty good up until the point that uh, I found out that my NCOs weren't even doing basic things and that uh, everyone kind of needed to come back to the office because I couldn't trust them anymore. <laughs> what are we drinking, Matt? Uh, Legion. Uh, it's a bourbon. It, so this bourbon here, it... Uh... It's a mix between like so the distillery they brought a um a distiller from Japan and so it's kind of a mix between a Japanese and, and a Kentucky bourbon um where they kind of partnership uh partnered up and made this bourbon. Oh wow. Very interesting. Uh, wow, I didn't even know they made bourbon in Japan. Who knew? Well, it was made in Kentucky, and that's why it's still a bourbon. But they brought the uh, the Japanese uh, distiller over here to Kentucky. That's pretty cool, actually. I'll have to uh, I'll have to put a note down when I'm on yours. I have a bottle of Habu Saki from 1987 that's never been opened. Oh wow! Nice. Yeah, right over there. <laughs> well i, I can always it. get I, some more i got friends over there <laughs> yeah i was leaving in december and i was like you know what i can't find this over there i'll take this with me so i bought a bottle and never opened it well if you want a bottle i'll uh, reach out to a friend and i can uh, get you a backup <laughs> all right so frank how did you find yourself at quantico at weapons um, so I'm, um, I'm not a part of weapons training battalion right now. I'm actually, uh, okay. it's going to blow some people's minds. My only job right now is to be a student at Georgetown. Granted it's a master's program and there's some weeks that I'm reading three academic books and writing papers and all that stuff. But, um, so I'm on the historian program right now, right? Um, it's two years in a master's program, anywhere you want to go. It just has to be in history. And my payback tour is to go to the Naval Academy. I'm going to be teaching, uh, I'm going to be a professor of Naval history. I've been doing that for three years in Annapolis. Um, I so I know a lot of guys on the team. Um, based on my schedule, I, I go down to Quantico to train. Like I, I train on Quantico once a week. That's how I get my practice in. Um, one of the one of the guys on the team is also shooting open. He's shooting my backup gun, and I'm kind of loading ammo for both of us until the team figures out their ammo situation. Um, so that's that's the scheme right now, and. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's pretty nice. It's a it's a good program. Uh, it sounds like a hell of a deal. Yeah, I that's I a still don't sweet gig. I still don't believe it sometimes. <laughs> Wait, uh, but well, hold on, we got to back up a minute. You're loading ammo for a guy on the team until they figure out their ammo situation. So there's a bit of um, they are currently not able to shoot government ammo through personal guns. Uh, just until they figure out the uh, the legal specifics in the order. So um, the 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 guy it's it's Sam Nelson. He's uh he's a he's been a member of the team uh, about a year and a half, and uh, he was actually one of my Marines uh, when I was down in Camp Lejeune. Uh, I used to send out these email blasts to the entire battalion, be like, "Hey, I'm 
I, I was a geo bachelor, right? So uh, every weekend I would drive like three hours to go to Sir Walter. I drive, you know, all over the state just to shoot. And uh, I brought Marines along with me and some of them stuck with it and some of them did it once. And uh, Sam Nelson's one of the few that actually did it persistently. Uh, we ended up shooting some division matches together and uh, he caught the eye of the team. Like he put in a lot of work on his own and uh, they ended up pulling him to the team. Um, so he's always wanted to shoot open and I was like, Hey, let's, let's do it together. So our first major match was a dragon's cup. And, um, we both mm. placed like 14th and 15th respectively. Nice. Okay. So the guys on the team use their own personal weapons. They don't use issued well, weapons or. So they're currently using issued weapons. Uh, but there was a period of time where we were, some of us were using our own personal guns uh, just because we preferred to. Um, like I had a, a high end 2011. Uh, the team at the time didn't really have any double stack 1911s or 2011s. Um, so we were basically allowed to shoot those guns at that time. Um, the, the gunsmiths at, at the precision weapon section are doing a really good job in making uh really high-end firearms for the team uh just good quality weapons so uh they are starting to they are using those guns now okay now the loading room i spent a little bit of time in the loading room in 1990 in between um eastern division matches and the start of the season mm -hmm. are they are they I mean, are currently they're currently not loading any ammo right now. Everything that the team is uh, getting for the most part now is either they're shooting uh, Dodic uh, uh, government ammunition, like the 77 grain, um, the 77 grain stuff, and they're practicing with uh, uh, the 9 mil, the 124 grain 9 mil that the government purchases. Uh, but they've also set contracts up to where, like, at, they're getting Atlanta arms, um, you know. So and they're getting federal shotgun ammunition. So they they are contracting a lot of that stuff out because it is better, it is consistent. Um, and and whenever they did have the ammo loader there, he was the only person he was only team he was loading for was the rifle team. Okay, I, I think that's what they were primarily loading then too. So mm -hmm. that's why I was curious. Okay, because obviously it goes from everything being nine mil to now you have 38 super comp or nine major, you know what I mean? Or 40. So, yep. okay. Interesting. So then Frank, then you're not at weapons. You're, you're doing your own little gig over here on the side. Yeah. <laughs> Wearing yeah, yeah. uniform. Sweet gig. How did you become the match director for USPSA and do you PCSL. say CSL? Yeah, we just started doing PCSL. So um, uh, Tim Tim Hitchek, Major Hitchek, he was the OPSO for Weapons Train Battalion. I first ran into him when I was uh, shooting matches down in uh, in North Carolina. But he he basically took the USPSA match on Quantico and completely overhauled it, professionalized it. Um, he, he does his own welding and a bunch of other stuff. He made his own like steel poppers. Really handy guy. And also just a really good officer, very organized. So he, he basically created like a very popular match. It's a testament to what he's done because, you know, as you know, like not everyone has access on Quantico. 
And right. if you are a civilian shooter, you have to go to the uh, guest office and you have to request access on a match weekend if you don't have like a, a CAC, right? And people, we still sell out. Like those matches are completely full. Uh, PCSL, we we had to we had to close the wait list. Mm -hmm. um, so wow. he he is now in the UAE. He got orders, and uh, for for a few months he was like, "Hey, I um, I'm gonna stop planning matches after April. Somebody needs to step in and uh, take up the mantle." And I thought about it, and I talked to my wife because you got to run everything, you know, by the spouse. And um, also, uh, I looked myself in the mirror and I'm like, Frank, you don't have a real job right now, so you could probably do this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a little, I mean, I, I promoted a major in April. Um, so I'm getting paid oh, as an okay. active duty major to be a student. Um, and I'm friends with a lot of guys on the team. I'm there all the time anyway. I'm an RSO. Um, I love the sport. I want to give back to it. And uh, honestly, Tim made everything super easy and organized. So I just have to... Uh, have to not let the ship sink how long do you show, see yourself doing that um at least another year uh it's a question of whether or not i'm going to be able to sustain it when i go to annapolis i we current i currently live in manassas there's no way that i'm going to live in manassas while i teach in annapolis that commute is just untenable um but i as long as as long as i need to um if there's no uh, replacement in sight what helps is that the guys on the team they're the ones that do stage design uh, a bunch of other stuff. They take care of the equipment. So as long as I have some kind of support system um, with me being away from Quantico, about 45 minutes away, then I'm good. I, I will do all the admin stuff. I will do all the boring officer stuff. But my uh, Alex Goking is the one who does all the stage design. And that's our agreement. I'm like, dude, I will do all the unsexy, not glorious stuff. I just need you to put down stage designs. We need to meet a couple times a month. And we just need to make sure that we like put, we just get the match running. And uh, it's, he put on the PCSL match largely by himself, but we will be doing USPSA this next month. Okay. Now, Matt, when I'm curious how much, I assume when you got rid of the precision pistol stuff, the Colonel, the weapons training battalion Colonel was in full support of what you did. He was, yes. Uh, we had to, we basically sat down, brought all the leadership of the team there, and I essentially made my case on the benefits of, uh, of getting rid of the Precision Pistol team and bringing on a USPSA team. And I showed everything from monetary uh, benefits to uh, what we could offer the rest of the Marine Corps. And it kind of pivoted from there. After we got the approval from there, about a year later, we started mobile training teams and we went to second recon battalion. We went to some of the PMOs and we started teaching them the skills that we have and taught them how to properly train. So yes, he was absolutely in full support of everything we did. Okay. Now that leads perfectly in, into the other part of why I was asking that. And that is that, I mean, since I was in and from 85 so from 85 until whenever you were able to stop it that was also how they competed at the division matches was basically national match style competition so by dropping precision pistol how has that affected division matches 
So that change has been a so that change went into effect even before we dropped Precision Pistol. So back in 2017, they brought in, well, 2015 they brought the combat matches in, which was just a three gun competition, and it wasn't like a formal uh, Marine Corps marksmanship competition or division match. It was just like, hey, we're gonna go out here, we're gonna host this match, uh, you know, and it was it was kind of to show the. Uh, marines and the fleet marine force a different style of uh shooting and to educate them and a and a form of recruitment um in 2017 they brought on the marine corps marksmanship competitions which is what we currently have today whereas the, it's predominantly just all action shooting um and that has largely been the same format since 2017 there and they weren't using any precision rifle uh, or high power they weren't training any marines on that it was just all largely action shooting because that's what the marine corps uh community wanted uh the senior leadership was like hey we're not going to support this if we're going to be doing high power bullseye stuff we want to see stuff that's going to be relevant to the marines and the marine corps in preparing us for the next fight so if i could uh add on real quick it, mostly action shooting but on the rifle side you guys also well you're, you're mostly doing uh gas gun stuff like prs yes. style um, yes. and some of that's like some of those ranges go out like uh, iron man goes out a thousand yards um some of the matches that matt has put on have really stretched the capabilities of those service weapons so that happened around 2009 time frame and one of my very good friends james gill he was the catalyst of that uh so just a quick history on gill back in 2006 he was deployed to iraq he got blown up he lost a leg and he lost an eye um he was going through rehabilitation um down in texas he started picking up shooting uh then and he wanted to stay in the marine corps um he got approval to stay in the marine corps and so they redesignated him as an armor and uh from there he got onto the Marine Corps shooting team because he was already shooting competition. And so he was on the shooting team roughly from 2009 to 2015 when he was finally medically retired. Uh, so he, James Gill is one of the biggest reasons why there is an action shooting team. Oh, okay. All right. I, I, cause I, I had no idea that they even had one. So, so I assume then that they're using, um a version of the m4 whatever shotgun and the m18 uh what, what are they using on a three gun so i mean we're using pure competition guns so some of the guys are using like p320s some guys are using uh you know caspians that have been built uh you know, double stack 1911s have been built specifically for three gun. Uh, the rifle is just a souped up uh, AR platform. And a lot of what they did is they just basically cut down like the, the barrels on the high power rifles, took a lot of the weight off, modified them, put uh, free floating rails on them and just built them purpose built them for three gun. Okay. So they just took what they had, modified them and, and yep. that was it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. The quickest thing you could do well uh, not only that but it allowed them to it allowed pws to take on a new skill set of hey we're going to develop a muzzle break we're going to we're going to come up with our own gas blocks and it really allowed them to use their skills as a gunsmith as gunsmiths and kind of continue the path because um 
what back in 2018 2019 we got rid of the sniper program as far as the marine corps uh building the guns for them and then they basically built the bought the commercial off-the-shelf guns um so pws was out kind of out of a job so the only people they were supporting was teams at the time so it allowed them to kind of innovate and figure stuff out on their own so has pws drawn down since then or uh, do they maintain strength they maintain strength because they're now starting to do a lot more programs for big marine corps now for the uh, the marine corps uh systems command uh they're working on some really cool projects now oh cool all right. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, Dave, if you're interested in some of uh, some of the um like we've we've covered some of these on our uh, podcast episodes. So we did an episode with James Gill and Jared Dalton about the uh basically the inception of action shooting uh for the Marine Corps shooting team. Uh Jared Dalton was an OIC back in the day, former chief warrant officer, turned commission officer, kind of a crazy career path. Um, and then we recently um we recently interviewed uh, Colonel Jones, who's currently the commanding officer of Weapons Training Battalion, just about where he sees some of these programs going. So um, there was recently uh, the creation of the Advanced Marksmanship Training Program, um, basically a formalization of how Marines are going to learn marksmanship, taking in some of the lessons from competition. Some of the Marines from the shooting team end up becoming part of AMTP. Um, they are looking at it, just just a bunch of other stuff uh, we talked to him a little bit about uh we talked to him about the snipers too didn't we matt we did yeah a lot of those pro a lot of the topics that you might find interesting uh were covered in that episode yeah i disagree with him on the sniper stuff so yeah it is what it is it's a hot topic <laughs> it same, is it, it was, it was the same way with the takers yeah and, and i i don't i don't necessarily uh, and I'm, I'm not even sitting here and saying, yeah, I think it's a dumb idea, just for historical reasons. Okay. Um, having known because my dad was also a sniper, but in Vietnam mm -hmm. um, and knowing, and he, it was actually, so here's a little bit of history for you guys. Do you guys know who Colonel Willis is? Yep. Okay. Yeah, I know. All right. So Colonel Willis he took was over CEO command of weapons training battalion. at weapons yeah. training battalion when yep. Colonel, I just had his name Reynolds died in a plane crash so colonel willis took over as co he was already out there i think he was the xo at the time took over as co and he actually sat my dad down and he sat um oh uh, why can't i think of his name hathcock um, so they were both on the team they had both been in vietnam they sat down but willis was like Tommy, you're staying as the head coach of the rifle team. And Hathcock, you're going to go over here and start this up. But they sat him down, came up with uh, how they were going to do this whole sniper school thing. Um, but my issue with it is they had nothing going into World War II. They had to put something together. They shut it down after World War II. They go into Vietnam, I mean Korea. They got to ramp it up again. After Korea, they shut it down. They go into Vietnam. They're trying to put it all back together again. So it just seems like we've been through this process before, but it is what it is. You can't change it now. You know, I, and I was never a sniper. You know, that wasn't my background. Um, but kind of looking at things as a whole with distributed operations and the way things are going, 
Um, one of the snipers main, and I, I'm not for or against it. I'm kind of indifferent just because I'm on the outside okay. now. Um, just thinking logically, uh, one of the the snipers main priorities was they were battalion's first uh, level of uh, intelligence. You know, first line of reconnaissance to see right. what the enemy's capabilities and limitations were and, and where they actually are. Um, so with the way technology has gone, you have technology that can go there where other people don't have to. Um, we still can have a long range capability through the designated marksmanship program that the Marine Corps is standing up. So they're just take, yeah, they're taking somewhat, they're taking an asset away, but they're also bringing more assets in to, to fight without having to put people there on the ground, but still have a long range co uh, component. And they're doing it in such a way to where you're going to have more uh, designated marksmen attached to a squad and attached to a platoon if we are going to this EABO distributed operations littoral force. So it, it, it is interesting. Like, I agree, like, you know, the 0317 uh, uh, battalion sniper, it's an important program. And the Marine Corps isn't necessarily just getting rid of snipers. Yes, at the uh, infantry battalion level, they are. But they're keeping reconnaissance snipers there. They're keeping the the raiders are have their sniper program. So there still will be uh, snipers in the Marine Corps. And I, I know, and you know, I spent time at third and second recon battalion, so I get that. But I also, having spent time there, I know how much time they're going to dedicate to that. Mm -hmm. So my concern is, you know, you're going to lose the knowledge, the actual skill. So there's going to be there's going to be a, a delayed response. And if, if we get into something where we need them again, mm -hmm. there's going to be a delayed response, getting, being able to get everybody ramped up. And that's all that that's my only, that's my concern. So, Oh no, I, I, I totally get it. I also look at it as an opportunity for a contract to be made up to where people can teach them. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Now, Matt, since you've retired, have you done more competition than you did before? No, I've, I've honestly kind of scaled back and I've gotten a little bit more stringent on what I do. Um, you know, one of the reasons I did retire, I originally, I was going to be one of those guys who went to 30 years in the Marine Corps. Um, okay. but kind of seeing how everything was going, kind of looking at myself internally, like, you know, five years on the shooting team, a year prior to that being over, you know, basically an independent operator over in Bahrain doing my own thing, not being in charge of people. One, I knew if I went back to the fleet, I wouldn't have the right mindset. Um, and I think it would have gotten me in some trouble, maybe. I don't know. Um, but also, we, we, we were no longer at war, uh, period. And so what are we going to do you know what kind of deployments are we going to do we're going to do more strategic missions i don't want to go i don't want to leave my family again just to go on a deployment uh and, and do more training in another country um so i've actually taken the time to just spend more time at home and be with family um and i've been more picky with what matches i've gone to uh just quality over quantity okay and that makes more sense because also it's it's on your dime now and not the Marine Corps. Yeah. Dime. So oh, yeah. there's a lot more cost involved now. 
Oh yeah. And if you and if people, I always say I switched from high power to this in 2018 because it costs a hell of a lot more to go shoot a high power match than it does to go shoot a practical pistol match somewhere. So oh yeah, it's crazy the cost difference. Now, the, I did want to go. The next part is, I did listen to that episode with Colonel Jones, and you guys talked about the tactical games, um, which I, I don't think, I think also doesn't really it, it. It has about as much relevancy to me as bullseye shooting. There are there are things you can get out of it, and you can mm-hmm. do it. Tests some things. But it's still not quite there. I don't remember the name of the match, but there's one I want to say it's in Georgia where it's a a rucking and shooting. Oh, you're talking about you're talking about the mammoth sniper competition, right? Now something more a lot not not the sniper part of it, but mm-hmm. I, I think the tactical games is too heavy on the drag this weight, put it over this. Yeah, the CrossFit stuff, um, but. The whole I, I like the three gun stuff too, but at the same time, I I don't think there's anything out there that's exactly <laughs> what mm-hmm. fits the Marine Corps. And is there anybody? This is for both of you here. Is there anybody that is trying to come up with a match that or a competition? I should say shooting that pertains more to what the Marine Corps' mission is than anything out there right now. So I'll set the stage for you, Matt. Um, the Tactical Games is incorporating a lot more practical shooting. We did an episode okay. with Nick Thayer, the president, and last year was all about pushing fitness. And mm-hmm. they've pushed fitness to a pretty gnarly level where athletes are carrying like 200-pound sandbags and yeah. they're scaling up like like 12, 12-foot walls. Just insanity. But this, this year is about pushing <laughs> shooting. So okay. um, I, I competed in Florence uh, in Texas in, um, in March. And there were two action stages. There's one complete pistol, drag a sled, shoot some gas gun, and there's one action rifle. They're trying to move more in that direction because they know that people look at the games as a basically a CrossFit competition with minimal yeah. shooting involved. But it's actually good that you brought up that topic because Matt is one of the people that's going to be responsible for introducing a lot more practical shooting into the tactile games arena. Yes. Uh- oh. So I, I mentioned James Gill, um, me and James Gill are designing a curriculum for the tactical games for all in-person training. So we're trying to professionalize everything and we're creating a program essentially to where if you're going to an affiliate club, you're going to have a curriculum that we design and it's going to give you everything that you need in order to train your students. And then it's also going to carry over to the tactical games university to where if, if you don't have an affiliate club near you, but there's a, an, a, a university going on somewhere near you, you can go to that and it's going to give you everything uh, to get you prepared to go shoot a tactical games. And it also pertains to training camp. So once or twice a year, the tactical games host a training camp um, where it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you are going through uh, essentially a training pipeline of the fundamentals, zeroing your guns to, you know, by the end of it, you are shooting action stages. You are getting more comfortable and confident with your guns that you have. And not only that, but you're also going to be instructed by, uh, 
you know, on the CrossFit or on the athletic side. So you're, you're getting both sides of the spectrum, the marksmanship and the CrossFit side. And they have Jacob Hepner, who uh, was, I want to say, a six-time uh, six CrossFit Games athlete. He'll be there. Uh, so the, the tactical games is going more in the direction of uh, action shooting. There will still be some stage that are, like, more fundamental shooting under duress, like the the you know you have to carry sandbags you have to you know carry heavy weights stuff like that and then you sh uh, shoot from a static position at a static target but then they're also doing the action stages james gill and i, I want to say in september he's going to be going out to nevada and on um you know friday you know before the actual tactical games pure matches he's going to have the tac two gun match which is an action match with some physical challenges more like you would see in combat scenario and then it's going to also be a regular tactical games match but to uh answer your question about you know what what exists out there that's really closer to something that would suit the marine corps i would say the two examples that come to mind are uh duskin three gun so matt's actually yeah. on the board for the duskin uh, foundation uh I don't know if you've heard of Duskin, but it's a um, it's basically it's a three gun match that's run down in Fort Bragg. It's in a, it's in memory of Chief and Officer Mike Duskin, um, and Mike was huge on getting soldiers into competitive shooting. He was a big three gunner himself. So every year on post, they hold a three gun match on um, basically like where where the Green Berets train on Bragg, and there's shoot houses. Um, they're making you how how much was that bench press mat? Those were like dumbbells were 80, 80 pound dumbbells. Yes. Yeah, yeah they were 80, eighty pound dumbbells. Eighty pound dumbbells, um, like uh fast roping, that kind of stuff. So I would say that's more on the shoot like it's heavier on the shooting side, but the physical parts of it are still pretty like there's still pretty intense. Um the other match I found that has done a really good job of balancing those two is the Griffin Group Rumble. Uh, Griffin Group is just a phenomenal range, um, but uh, sure about well, there. Well, uh, let me correct you there. I, it's no longer at Griffin yeah. Group. It's going to be at TRC, but it's called the Rumble, yeah. and it's it's physical it's physical challenges with uh, technical practical shooting. So it's like you know you're dragging like a 150 pound sled, and then all of a sudden you got to shoot the equivalent of a USPSA stage. Um, so you learn a lot about yourself, like you know it's when you when you go into a practical shooting stage and your forearms are shot and uh you know you, you just can't get your grip the same way um it's just making everything that much harder and also your heart rates up um it just exposes you in a way that uh typical uspsa three gun you doesn't usually um so the those are right. those are kind of small scale and like one-offs i think someone has still yet to professionalize and bring that to like a national stage uh, but I think the tactical games is making an earnest attempt to incorporate practical shooting and make shooting more dynamic. Okay. Now I do have a couple of questions about that at the tactical games. What type of rifle shooting are we talking? Are we talking out to 300 yards out to 200 out to 100? What type of rifle shooting in the tactical games are we talking? So it's, you know, it's all at the limitations of the range. Uh, when I shot my last match, it was a team match uh, down in South Carolina. We shot rifle out to 400 yards, 450, okay. 450. Um, so there is a level of technical shooting. There are times where you're shooting static uh, stages 
uh, static rifle out to 60, 70, 80 yards and more of a precision. They'll have, you know, a target that has like, you know, three or four minutes of angle um, within that distance. Um, but you're also out of breath um, and you may or may not have some type of support. And then you're shooting some targets out at 25 yards, but in a in more of a practical shooting setting. Okay. So it's kind of a different. They they have a couple different flavors of marksmanship. So you can't be just good at one. You have to be able to shoot them all. Now you said you shot a team match. Is mm -hmm. there anything in the future for like squad? And I don't mean like a thirteen man marine squad, but say like a fire team squad uh, size squad, maybe a little bit smaller competition where you're all maybe. You know, three people dragging 150 pound and, and one does one discipline, one does a shotgun, one does a pistol, one does a rifle, but it's a team type of squad thing. So the closest thing I could think of that is, and it's not physical at all, it's more stand and deliver uh, match, uh, the the top 10 three-man three-gun. Uh, it's a three-man team match where, like I said, you could be doing just a stand and deliver and all three people are shooting at the same time. Uh, they're, they can either be shooting all the same gun or everybody could be shooting a different gun depends on the target array or it's also can be, uh, they also have stages that are in a relay format. Um, so that's really the only match out there in a format that has more than two people and it, it's a three man match. Okay. I've seen the, I think it was tactical games where they do the relay Mm -hmm. Where you like bat you one person bashes in a door, the other person ran through the door and then engaged targets had to run back, then the other person had to go. Yep, that's a team match. Okay. Yep, that's that their team is... match. And 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 the, so they host two team matches. Uh they're doing two team matches this year. Uh typically it's an individual. Uh typically they most the majority of their matches are all individual matches. Um uh, but they are doing some of the team match formats as well. And even at an individual, if you are new to the sport and you want to shoot as a team at an individual competition, you are allowed to register as a team. But you're going to be shooting, uh, you're going to be shooting as a team, but on individual stages. They're not, they're not making that event specifically for teams. Okay. Now you, uh, well, Frank actually mentioned that. Um, one of the last competitions you shot, they had 80 pound dumbbells. What do they do if somebody can't, somebody might be very fit, but not necessarily super strong. So what do they do in those situations? So, it's a time added penalty. And I would know yeah. that because uh, uh, I, did, I did, I did four, I did like four and I was just, I couldn't get it up on the fifth, uh, the fifth press. So I just threw them to the side and I was like, whatever, I'm just going to shoot the rest of the stage. Um, okay. so it's a pretty hefty time penalty. I would want to say like 60 seconds. At it. it was 60. Yeah. It was yeah. 60 wow. second penalty. It was a crusher. <laughs> it would have been better wow. if I just didn't try it, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, will, I will say the special thing about the Duskin match. It, it's, it's not just that one of the biggest things is you shooting a match in, in, in honor and in memory of a special forces soldier who gave his life, um, and he was a just a beast of a man. Uh, he was like six foot six, you know, three hundred pounds, or I don't remember exactly. He he weighed a lot, and he was a fit individual. 
uh, gave his life <laughs> for this country. Uh, but he had this passion, like Frank said earlier, to get more soldiers involved. And so they only invite 40 to 50 civilians to this match. Everybody else is active duty soldiers in the special forces community in order to um, introduce them to a different style of shooting. The special forces community realize that there are better ways to train and there are and there are other events out there to make them more lethal and survivable in combat situations. And so the, you know, third special forces group is given full support of continuing the, the Duskin match and, and the legacy that Mike Duskin left. All right. Now there is something else that you guys, uh, it seemed like all three of you, the two of you and Colonel Jones agreed on. And that was, that you guys felt a better quality match that turned people away was better than the old antiquated matches where you could have more people in. Now, my, my only dissent to that is, again, what I did in the Marine Corps, um, our trigger time was 1% of my entire time there. So we didn't have really, here's how bad it was. When we were getting ready to go on a med float, we couldn't even get ammo to zero our M16s. Okay. So what we did was we went out in town to Jayville. We bought ammo. So the Lieutenant was the one who got with the, uh, the platoon sergeant was like, look, we're okay if we buy the proper ammo and we go out and we can zero our guns and then we can hit the live fire range, shoot up the rest of what we have and do some maneuvering training with that. That's how we ended up zeroing our guns before we went on a med float. It sounds like a heartbreak bridge scenario right here. Yeah. So my, my so when I heard you guys say that, I was like, uh, Maybe things have changed, <laughs> yeah. but I know when I was in, it wasn't that easy to get trigger time. So in my mind, it's like any try, any trigger time is better than no trigger time. And I had almost no trigger time. So have things changed? Is it easier for those guys in the fleet to get trigger time outside of normal training? So I'll say a lot of it comes down to priorities. Um, I would say it's a lot easier to get ammo. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I haven't really encountered a scenario in my career to where it was that hard. Um, but it also comes down to priorities. Uh, uh, you know, an, a, a battalion only has a certain allotment of ammo and you mm -hmm. can't waste it all. And so you need to uh, you need to use it intelligently uh, during certain exercises and that's going to be usually your fire maneuver ranges and, and your annual quals that you, you have to accomplish. Um, so to answer the question, yes, it is a lot easier to get ammo compared to back then. It's just use a little bit more intelligently toward the, the level of tasks that need to get accomplished. But nobody is really getting that type of training in the setting that we offer now. So I'll, I'll add on to that. Um, when I was a company commander, and one of the reasons Matt brought me onto the uh, onto the podcast was to talk about the command-sponsored shooting team that I'd started when I was at 8th Com. And uh, it's a priority for me, right? People 
like at the the bare minimum is that Marines go out and they do their annual qualification, but it's just a qualification and it's not really training. It's a validation. And by, by, by virtue of the meaning of the word qualification, it's like the bare minimum of what's required for you to know how to operate your weapon. Um, so it was important to me to get extra trigger time. Um, I planned two ranges, like one pistol specific range. We're out there all day. We had two guys, uh, Josh Cardenas and Sam Nelson came down to teach my Marines and we had a good time. We incorporated an action style stage. It was a pain in the ass to work with range control, but we made it happen, right? We made that happen on Camp Lejeune. Um, I put together a rifle style course of fire and we worked on a lot of like close range stuff manipulations, all transitions. We did an El Prez, all that kind of stuff. We had shot timers. And then the next day I actually had a um, frangible ammunition so we could shoot on steel targets. And, you know, we're able to push steel targets out there. I, I sourced some locally. Uh, I bought some myself and we were able to shoot. And this was all in preparation for the uh, division match or the Marine Corps Marksmanship competition. So, and then after all that, like that was a small group of Marines. Like I wanted it to be a quality event. And from there, I took the most promising Marines and I had them come up with their own curriculum based on what I taught them, uh, what, what we all taught them. And I was like, okay, I want you to teach my company now. We're gonna rent, we're gonna get this range for an entire week. We're gonna get all the ammo. I'll take care of all the logistics on the off on the O side, but I'm gonna let the NCOs uh, run the show, do the demonstrations and teach. And um, yeah, the, the, the Marines really enjoyed that. And you know, it, it's not something that I got like extra marks for on my fit rep it's it it really like it was a negligible um i guess a you know benefit to to my career but it's just something i cared about you know uh one thing i'll say is a lot of the reason why training isn't structured the way we do it in the practical shooting manner is a lot of people don't necessarily know how to train how we train on the team it comes down to that when we went down to second recon battalion and showed them what they are capable of they were absolutely amazed and they and they brought the team back down two three more occasions why because they saw the value in it and a lot of people in the marine corps just aren't aware of this style of shooting uh, and it it's no fault to their own it's just we're we're nerds we we absolutely love what we do we're extremely passionate about what it is that we do um so they look at things in terms of mission and capabilities and nowhere in the TNR manual, uh, the training and readiness manual, does it say you have to engage this target from the holster within two and a half seconds or one and a half seconds. You know, a lot of people aren't aware of what their full capabilities are. They're just only aware of what the manual tells them that they have to accomplish uh, based on, on whatever mission set that they're going into. Uh, completely agree. Uh, I was I was at the sniper school from February of 91 to December of 94. I didn't know anything about USPSA, IDPA, none of that. I didn't know anything about practical shooting. And what, I didn't, USPSA started in what, 1977 or something like that with yeah. uh, Colonel Cooper? I mean, it's been around for so long, yet it's starting to now just gain traction in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, Ernest Langdon was at HRP at Quantico, who ended up being a national champion in 2000 in USPSA. So, I, I mean, I just, I had no idea. So, crazy. 
But going back real quick, um, hopefully things have changed at the reconnaissance battalion too, because we had one guy in our platoon who was school trained as a sniper. At the time, we went on deployment. And he had never seen that rifle that he took on deployment until we went on deployment. And then it went back in the armory when we got back, and he never saw it again. So hopefully things change, you know, with the dissolution of the division schools and the instructor school. Hopefully things change within those battalions and they get out there and do more training with that stuff. Oh, they absolutely do. I mean, I, I think one thing we learned through the, the years we were in Iraq and Afghanistan was the value of training and, and especially in terms of snipers, you know, getting them out there and learning and understanding their guns and getting the dope for their rifles and just knowing what its capabilities and limitations are. Well, that's good to hear. Now, the one last question I have for you guys before we close this thing out is, it's a two-parter. How did you guys start the podcast? And two, did you have to go through PAO to do the podcast? So I'll, I'll take this. Uh, <laughs> so we started the podcast, or I'll start it with, I started the podcast in September, no, August, August or September of 2021. Um, and... I did not have to go through PAO. I started the podcast because I remember what it was like. And, you know, one of my very good friends, Chris Scott, who is uh, one of the OICs on the team, you know, both of us kind of talked and we were like, there is no information about the Marine Corps shooting team anywhere. Yes, we have the Facebook page, which we, you know, we try and keep updated, but there's really no information about what it is that the team does, how to get on the team. You know, we were like, when we were trying to get to the team, uh, you know, and in that period of waiting, we just wanted to see what they were doing and get as much information as we could. So it kind of started as a, a, a catalyst to, you know, get more information out to the rest of the Marine Corps and, and the fleet Marine force. Um, and it was, when I started, it was kind of spotty. It was like, I'll put an episode out here, put an episode out there. And it, you know, I really didn't professionalize it. And so then, um, I had Frank on after an episode, uh, after we met at a tactical games team match and, you know, talked to him and then I brought him on again. And I was, and I was like, I, I asked Frank, do you want to be a host on this podcast? And ever since Frank's on, it's been nothing but, getting more and more professionalized well i mean he is he is in a master's program yes frank he's gonna go teach at the naval academy yeah yeah he didn't know that when he pulled me but uh yeah it didn't work out. <laughs> well but you were a, part probably of, a captain at the time I, I was i was uh yeah i met matt um during one of the mic mix the division matches um i went to championships uh at, at while he was still a staff in CYC, um, they were looking at me to possibly take the OIC position, but obviously other things happened. But I'm really grateful for him bringing me along. It's um, he he has he knows so many people within the shooting community and the Marine Corps community. Um, so I get to have conversations with people I wouldn't have met otherwise. Um, 
but it's also i mean it's fine it's the reason you do it dave i mean you just you get to talk to people about shooting you get to talk to people about one of your main passions amazing um yeah you get to have conversations like this so uh yeah no it's it's really it's really been quite rewarding um another thing i'll mention real quick is that when, when matt started the podcast it was 3g iq like three gun iq and we recently rebranded because um <laughs> it's not really about just three gun anymore we didn't really want to you know pigeonhole ourselves um right we have started covering the tactical games i shoot mostly uspsa and now i'm a match director so we wanted to um it, it's the, the the emphasis has always been on the military and our purpose has always been to get information out there but to encourage marines military whatever to get into competition shooting right to just experience it like just try yes. it um, and see what else is out there because it brings us a level of confidence and a level of understanding your weapon systems and ballistics and all these other things that are only going to make you more lethal and only going to make you more survivable. Something that both of us are really, you know, passionate about. Um, so our episodes are a mishmash of, you know, we'll interview guys on the shooting team. We'll interview, you know, Colonel Jones, we'll interview uh, civilian shooters, um, but it has to be shooting related or military related. Um, we're nearing a hundred episodes. You know, I wasn't around for all of those, but uh, you know, it, it, it's just been, it's been really rewarding along the way. Like Matt and I talk like most days during the week, just brainstorming ideas and bouncing ideas off of each other. I, I like that you guys are doing it and it's focusing. I mean, I hope that more and more Marines find it and listen to it and, and get involved. But let me ask you this Quantico is unique in that they have uh, the Quantico shooting club. Mm -hmm. Most bases don't have that, but is there any, and maybe you guys can shed some light on this, but is there any drive to have practical shooting matches on other Marine bases? So I, I can take the lead on this one, Matt, if you're cool with yep. that. Um, yep. So I mentioned I started that shooting team, right? Uh, so my, I've sent my order and all my documents, you know, the planning, the LOI, I've sent that to maybe five different people. So off the top of my head, um, we know the operations officer down in uh, Stone Bay. His name's Parker Tomasi. He's a major. Um, he hosted his own intramural, which was all action shooting. And when, when I when I was in that office, uh, him and his boss were talking, and his boss was like, that was really cool. You know, I, I enjoyed shooting that match. Uh, maybe we should do this on the weekends. So that conversation is happening. Um, awesome. My, my friend over in Okinawa, the last place you would expect this to happen, uh, Jared Holmeyer. You know, after the uh, they, he hosted an intramural, same thing, action shooting, and uh, they're looking at making it a more regular thing. Because honestly, for guys stationed out there, that's the only way they're going to get trigger time is if the base hosts a match and uh, use government ammo and weapons. Yeah. Haven't really heard anything on the Hawaii front, um, but we did just have another Marine go out. Um, you know, Staff Sergeant Robert Germanello. Went out to California. He also hit me up for my order. So he's going to try to get something started over at uh, the 3rd Marine Air Wing. So that's really all it is. Like, I I kind of ran through a lot of walls and I, I messed some things up. And uh, I made myself look foolish in some ways uh, doing doing all this and putting together on Lejeune. Um, but I think the, the, the ripple effect is that people have realized that what's possible. And they realize that, you know, it, it's going to be difficult working with range control. And you working with logistics and all the staff sections is always going to be a hassle but as long as you're on top of it there's really no limit to what you can accomplish on the marine corps base and uh the end product is that you get to bring practical shooting 
to your Marines and they get to see a side of shooting that's actually fun and not just, you know, pulling pits or like waiting in line to do their qualification. Yeah, well, it expands their range of marksmanship ability. Absolutely. Um, and it gives them that trigger time. Like I was saying that we never got, had they had matches at Lejeune, Stone Bay, you know, that I could go to, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there would have been between the entire battalion out on Onslow Beach, we weren't that far from Stone Bay. So <laughs> that would have been, and we, we would all go out at times on a weekend on just somebody's property, stand online and just shoot at trees. You know what I mean? So it would have given us something a little bit better to do. But my question is, on Okinawa, was that Hanson or Schwab that he did that? Um, Matt, do you, do you remember where they – where do you guys usually do the make mic on? A, we on we typically do the make mics on uh, Camp Hanson. Uh, they have the ranges for it there. I mean, they do have the ranges at Schwab too, but – it's it's a lot easier to get them done over at Hanson. Well, and uh, the only reason I asked was I wanted to make sure it wasn't somewhere further south because, you know, most of your infantry guys are either at Schwab or Hanson. Yep. So if it's at Hanson, that's a quick, I mean, it's only 12 miles. It's like a half hour, but it's only like 12 miles. So, or might even be less. I don't remember. But anyway, it's, it's an easier move to go down there to be able to shoot and then go back to the base. So, yep. All right. Well, that's cool. And it is bullets and bourbon. It is. Yep. All right. Correct. I like we, it. We, yeah. We come out with episodes uh, every Friday. Um, yeah. We're, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, even though the Facebook's pretty dead. But uh, yeah, hit us up and um, yeah, give us a listen. Absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back now and listen to the James Gill and Dalton episodes. Well, gentlemen, thanks for coming on. Was there anything that we covered that we needed to touch on that you felt we didn't cover properly? No, I think we covered everything. We just appreciate you having us on. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man, thanks, my pleasure. Thank you. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.